I haven't done this before. Whenever I make a video, I've always thought about basically what I wanted to cover prior to starting the video. And I was just here laying on the floor and I thought, why not make a video just off the cuff about anything I want to. I know this is stupid, but I was just thinking about that I haven't hooked anyone in four years. And I never, when it was my grandmother and I didn't want to hook her, I've never voluntarily hugged anyone I wish I could. I wish I could cuddle with someone I love. And, but I recognize that that's no different than anything else I've talked about pertaining to desire. just heard was audio of Adam Lanza, um, who murdered 26 people on December 14th, 2012, at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, I don't normally do this, but 
I am going to give a content warning for this episode. Um, I know I have a very diverse audience and many of you will be interested um, in listening to this. This is not about the crime. This is about Adam Lanza's digital footprint and the online communities which he frequented. But it was very upsetting for me to research. Um, I I spent a long time, um, I I read uh, hundreds, hundreds of pages, thousands of words, um, and I, I still don't think that I said everything that I needed or wanted to say about this. Um, this also isn't a somber episode. Um, I, I recorded it with my friend, uh, Gio Penichetti, and um, we do bring in our own experiences. And um, while we we take seriously this crime, um, we, we also uh, left room for reflection and, and humor about our own lives. Um, there will be moments where we laugh and we tell jokes, um, and this isn't to trivialize what we're discussing. Um, this is often to, to make something really difficult to talk about a little bit easier. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. Um, this is something that I'm very interested in, and I, I want to talk about more. Um, I think that we we don't really understand the impact the internet has on people, and it's not as obvious or as clear cut as if you're online too much, you get radicalized. I don't think that's the story at all. Um, I think tech's impact on people, um, we're just starting to scratch the surface of what it means and what it does to the psyche. Um, and then I guess without further ado, uh, Here's me and Gio talking about Adam Lanza's digital footprint. from years of internet uh esoteria so i mean so has mine which is it's that's uh that's something that like revealed itself to me and i I feel like it's constantly revealing itself to me like it does change your brain structure um and i think it's just not socializing enough um and I, i think that ends up becoming relevant with with lanza uh and i had this question which was like uh you know when people say that isolation impacts you, does that mean physical isolation or does it like, or is it just perceived isolation? Because, um, and you know, like you and I, uh, I'm just going to go out on a limb and make some assumptions about your personal life. Like I don't, oh, go ever ahead. See, yeah, I don't ever see actual people, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, me I'm like, neither. Me uh, neither. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not yeah. alone, but I'm, I'm like, certainly not, uh, in, interact. I don't even leave my home every day. <laughs> Oh God. Honest. Yeah. We're the same. Besties. <laughs> it's like, it's, I'm, like <laughs> I'm one of those people who's just like physically attached to their couch and their furniture. <laughs> Do I look like I go outside of my home? <laughs> look, I don't know, dude. Like people are always telling me like, Oh, but your skin's so good. And it's like 17. Some, I not only do I live in the Midwest, it's like, I haven't seen a window. 
in a minute. You're, you're living you know? the ethereal, um, divine androgyne ideal of uh, the beauteous uh, skin and frame that comes about from an ascetic lifestyle, an astuteness, an auspiciousness of all things. You're living it. So there you go. E, <laughs> e solitude is just does one no i'm kidding it, it ruins your body after a while but that's oh, totally another issue. um yeah i'm getting a, i'm getting a physical soon and i'm kind of scared because it's like i don't look like someone who doesn't move but i don't move so <laughs> i don't i'm not excited to to find out what uh <laughs> what that's been doing to me it's it's funny i was watching this video by this like um neat uh black pill channel what was it like a, a few months ago? And they were actually talking about like the physical health problems of neats. And it's true that um, a sort of, I guess, extreme, not extreme, well, yeah, extreme aesthetic, um, aesthetic lifestyle, either one that's given to you online or one that was traditionally given to you through philosophy or through religion or so forth. Um, you do have very like unique and interesting health problems, but at the same time, health obsessions and it's funny because adam lanza also had some of those ticks like you just have this general sense of unwellness and also it's sort of like and i've experienced this too like you go through bouts of like hypochondria but yet you know that you're living an unhealthy lifestyle not just like physically but also mentally but there's something about it that um leads to obsessions of health and um sort of neuroses around one's own body even though you don't have the input so much of the other um you know what i mean like you don't have the sort of immediate um phenomenological experience of like another person gauging you every single day and then when you do go in public it's sort of weird like i went to a restaurant with my friend the other week and it's like oh god are people looking at me it's like you know i don't know it's weird i mean maybe i'm just we're just telling ourselves but who knows I don't think so. I mean, I think it's 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 useful to say. I, I I do think the point about like becoming obsessed with your obsessed with your body when you're too online or like too isolated um, is I mean, that's something I think about all the time because I do think that anorexia is sort of like the the or if not anorexia like body modification is the nexus yep. of all like digital communities. And Adam himself was anorexic, which I thought was really interesting. And um, anorexia comes up a lot uh, in his uh, online, uh, his definitely in his YouTube videos, uh, one line that he, he repeats over and over and over again is that, um, he's attracted to, uh, young teenage girls who have the bodies of, uh, anorexic teenage boys or anorexic 12 year old yeah. boys rather. Um, he had a document on his computer, uh, called reasons to stay thin. Um, he decided at one point he was six feet tall. He was, uh, under 110 pounds. Um, so this was a huge, uh, this was this was huge for him. He was very specific about what he ate, um, and I, I think that that's more um, it's more than just his alleged autism. I think that yeah. uh, I and I also I also question the various diagnoses that he received, as, as we'll find out. Uh, I believe there's there's autism, and then there's a sort of social anxiety that I think is brought on by obsessive computer use that is mistaken for autism. And mm. autism becomes a lens through which to view the world and to pattern match. But had he been socialized in a different way, maybe he, like he certainly, and I'll say this, he certainly wasn't schizophrenic either. I've, I've listened to maybe five hours of this, this man speaking, and th this is not a schizophrenic. This is someone who is completely broken 
uh, by by isolation. Well, they say that like I know it's a meme, but they say that autism that rather the internet is like the autism machine uh, par excellence because it's giving you a sort of polysemous reality of things where you are extremely in some sense detached from your body, maybe not to the extent that VR would be. But as my friend Crooner said recently in, in uh, my podcast, Content Minded, which is coming out, I think, this Wednesday from we're recording, um, like the sort of VR thing to have a digital body is in some sense a regression. And that the early internet is in a way the quintessence of detachment from your body to escape it. And so in many ways, Adam Lanza is even more than uh, St. Elliot, by the way, even more than St. Elliot. Um, <laughs> yeah, see, even me just saying that, it's like I'm consigning my own thoughts to the discourse of like hyper edgy Chan culture by saying St. <laughs> Elliot. Um, but in more ways, he is sort of the quintessence of the early to mid internet poster, anonymous, um, even in that um, John Zerzan interview, not interview, he called into his radio show, he used a different name where anonymity was the sort of, anonymity becomes the mode of communication, but you still have a persona, but still you are in this web or the sea of images and text and sounds and the body is sort of displaced. But now that you have corporations going back to what they think is like this retrofuturism of VR and second life and so forth, like that is in some ways this is what Crooner said. Um, by the way, Crooner did the e-girl documentary. Um, in some ways, that's a regression, right? Because if you want to have a digital body, the internet in some ways was designed to escape the machinations of one's body. So um, yeah, but go ahead. I, I, mean, I also I, have... I was going to say, I don't think in some ways, I mean, I think that's sort of explicitly the purpose, right? Like whether it's transcending you know, time and space or just the limitations of what you look like, like, uh, you know, it was originally described as the social laboratory, not just because you could communicate with people around the world, but, um, or, you know, even people down the hall, <laughs> uh, because yeah. if you were, if you were born a man, you could, you could try out being a woman. And this was that this sort of gender bending was like really celebrated and it was seen as, as fun. It was, you know, role-playing is really this, the seed of, of, you know, fandom and role-playing or, or, or what builds the internet. Um, and yeah. so is this uh, playing with your identity in this way. Um, there, there's also, it's funny you mentioned about, um, you mentioned about anorexia. There's this passage I'm trying to find um, from Jean Baudrillard's America, where he talks about anorexia, um, you know, anorexia being in, in some ways the sort of like supreme decadence uh, of the modern world, because America you know, really being like the hyper-reality machine. So he says, uh, let me find it, it's on page 31. Um, he says, disgust for a world that is growing, accumulating, spiraling, sliding into hyper-catastrophe, a world that cannot manage to give birth. The principle of satisfaction and inertia can be read as the desolation of time, of the body, of land. This body, not our body, appears only as non-essential. Basically, useless in its size, in its multiplicity, in the complexity of its organs, its materiality, its functions, um, what with being every day, everything concerned today in the, in the head and in the genetic formula that alone in turn encompasses the operational definition of being, 
Uh, so then he goes on to say about how um, anorexia, uh, women in particular, but also homosexuals, blacks, and other ethnic minorities all suffer uh, um, the, this wrath at some point from the quick glance to its obviously why. These are the groups who in a postmodern society find their place in the margins being brought into the center. The, uh, the To Bateman, so Patrick Bateman, uh, the rise of the marginalized threatens the central position. Uh, but then I'm, I'm trying to find the exact quote where he talks about anorexia. Um, yeah, but he says basically that um, anorexia being a symptom of like modern, like especially modern American society that is so fixated on like the hyperreal spectacle, how that in a way, um, like, <laughs> like the fact that you choose not to eat is this sort of like weird uh, inversion of not only necessity, but also um, the sort of like the asceticism that you find in various like religious groups. Now that uh, essentially you're taking something that was meant for um, this like extreme closeness to mortality. Now you're trivializing it and making it into a lifestyle, quote unquote. Um, it is like this weird symptom of culture, but yeah, I mean, I, I'll find I, the exact I, quote. But yeah. I sort of, I, my take on it is that it- Oh, I found, it, oh, I found the quote. Sorry, I found okay. the quote. Yeah, go, go ahead. Um, so all these track suits and jogging suits, these loose fitting shorts and baggy cotton shirts, these easy clothes are actually old bits of net, nightwear. All of these relaxed walkers and runners have not yet left the night behind. As a result of wearing these billowing clothes, their bodies have come to float in the clothes and they themselves float in their own bodies. Anorexic culture, a culture of disgust, of expulsion, of anthropomenia, of rejection. Characteristic of a per period of obesity, saturation, and overabundance. The anorexic prefigures this culture in rather a poetic fashion by trying to keep it at bay. He refuses lack. He says, I lack nothing. Therefore, I shall not keep it at bay. Um, sorry, therefore, I shall not eat. With the overweight person, it is the opposite. He refuses fullness repetition. Sorry, he refuses fullness and repletion. He says, I lack everything, so I will eat <laughs> anything at all. The anorexic staves off lack by emptiness. The overweight person staves off fullness by excess. Both are homeopathic final solutions. Solutions by extermination. The jogger has yet another solution. In a sense, he spews himself out. He doesn't merely expend his energy in, in running. He vomits it out. He has, he has attained the ecstasy of fatigue, the high of mechanical annihilation. Just as the anorexic aims for the high of organic annihilation, the ecstasy of empty bodies. The obese individual seeks the high of dimensional annihilation, the ecstasy of the full body. Wow, I, I didn't know I was chasing ecstasy by, uh, <laughs> by, <laughs> by eating pizza. I don't know. But yeah, but you see like this is... <laughs> What do you make of that default? Before I theory sell all over, what do you make of that? <laughs> theory sell all over. <laughs> uh, I mean, I look, I, I agree with some of it. I think it's even, and I mean, maybe I'm misunderstanding. I think it's even more simplistic than that. Um, we live even before people were sort of attached to their laptops and their smartphones. We have a very disembodied society and it is a reminder. It, anorexia, just as binge eating, shocks you back into your body because not only are there physical actions that you need to complete, 
there are physical consequences and there are very few other things in our lives that um, make us really feel and own the consequences of movement. And that's, mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of, that's what I saw in Lanza. I mean, that's what I, I see in, in people who are on, you know, totally lost to the, the pro-Anna wormhole. That's what I've experienced myself. Um, you know, it's, it's not just that like it's anesthetizing, which it is in some way, but also everything in our society, overeating, overexercising, not eating at all, um, is a reminder, like you are, your, your, your mind might be gone, but your body is here and you need to feel it. Um, even, even gender transition in a way, if you want to separate it from what it actually is and go real esoteric, oh, you know, oh. <laughs> it's shocking yeah. you back into your, into your physical form it's forcing you to feel something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think that it, it, in some ways, it's a very ancient um, American feeling. Not sorry, it's a very ancient, um, I said American feeling, <laughs> the tongue. it's a very ancient uh, religious feeling, I think there is something to it. But yet, it's like in a world of excess, to be anorexic is in a way not like a protest, but rather in a way like a hyper form of excess by driving towards um, this perfection of the body or rather something that is a cachexia, something that is a violation of the body, but is viewed through perfection. And this has been sort of, like I said, I said, a very old ideal, um, but I think it is one that is very uh, chthonic and destructive and so forth. And in a way it's like, to push yourself to limit, it's a form of like what it, uh, well, yeah, the limit experience that Bataille talks about. It is something that um, I noticed that a lot of people on the edge, either through extreme forms of narcissism or people that have various uh, cults of personality or people who lead very um, eccentric uh, Lebens philosophies, life, life philosophies, they all tend to have like, a very startling relation to the body. Now, without uh, subtweeting certain cults of celebrity, I think that it is it is kind of weird how the sort of waif, um, ethereal, anorexic being becomes the ideal. So here's another Baudrillard quote from America. Um, Nothing evokes the end of the world more than a man running straight ahead on a beach, concocted... <laughs> cocooned in a solitary sacrifice of his energy. In a sense, he spews himself out. He has to attain the ecstasy of fatigue, the high of mechanical annihilation. So um, I, yeah, I think that's, that's great crazy because you have to remember the context that Baudrillard was going uh, in the eighties. He did this trip, this like lecture tour in America and he like did the whole like route 66 road trip. And he was commenting on the sort of psyche of America being like this place of speed everything is the desert. Everything is like immediately, every sort of cultural bauble is immediately on the surface, ready to pluck, ready to exploit. And the desert is this sort of like perfect metaphor for the driving heart of America being like a limited experience in itself. And there is of course, you know, the, the, the Turner thesis, the frontier, you know, the frontier closes. And I think like to bring this back to Adam Lanza, I think that in a way, his world, like, well, I mean, his world, I mean, like, the world of that sort of period of the internet was also like a frontier that was closing. And it produced a lot of like, I hate to say it, it produced a lot of monsters. I mean, it produced a lot of good things as well. But 
he was one of those weird monsters. I think that this type of experience of the body in relation to online being, if you will, or lack thereof online, online anatma. <laughs> I think that like, it was a monster that was produced in him, but I don't know. I mean, this is, is that, this is really he, crazy and out there. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he's a personality type that I can't. And I think a lot of people like struggle with this. Like I can't quite, it's, it's like getting deep into uh, what's made available to us about his online footprint. It's even, even though his posts and his expression is very dark, it like paradoxically is like even more confounding that he committed the crimes that he did Yeah, because there's so much about him that is, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when you, when you look at um, the web footprint of someone like Isabella Janke or uh, Sol Pais, uh, you know, two women who, uh, for Isabella Janke, she's the person who forced uh, or coerced Chris, Chris Chan into raping his mother. And Sol Pais is a young woman who was a, was a Columbiner um, who threatened to shoot up several schools and ultimately committed suicide. It's, they, it, it's, you realize how hard it actually is to tell the, the edgelord from the true criminal and what the personality yeah. type is because there's something so childish and naive about all of these, these people. Um, and it, it, it makes you realize like it, it is, it, it, it really is difficult to know what people are capable of. If you look at, um, I don't know if you read through Adam's chat logs. Um, they're pretty hard to oh, read. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. They're boring. They're really boring. But he has this like raw, so random kind of 2006 style of humor. And, it, you know, you, when you think about the way people described these chat logs, which is, uh, I think the, the main description of them was, uh, you know, they reveal his homosexual desires. When you look at these homosexual desires and they're just, you know, these garden variety jokes that, he's, he's, he's not even like a 4chan right? Like he's, yeah. he's just like a sort of emo kid. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's weird, but it's not necessarily literally gay. And it's, it's, well, it's at it's this really point. At, yeah. At this point, I think that 4chan um, wasn't as solidified in what we know as like, if you grew up as a 4chaner, then you became part of the alt-right. You became quote-unquote radicalized. If you grew up on something awful, then you became a Reddit, so egalitarian. Like, 4chan was still sufficiently open to a lot of different things. It wasn't until around, like, 2015 that it's po the politics of Paul, politically incorrect, became solidified. So you did have, like, a lot of crazy misanthrope types. Now, going through his online essays, that some of them he recorded on YouTube, he was, like, one of the early YouTubers, um, he had this like obsession with pedophilia. Like he had like, you know, they're the ultimate, he said the most persecuted people and nobody really cares about this. Um, and like out of all people, out of transsexuals and homosexuals, pedophiles are the most persecuted people. And uh, he had that sort of thinking that I think, now, now let me give you some e-history here. Let me lay it down for you. <laughs> Sorry, DeFi. I, I know. But, uh, <laughs> <Let's hear it. laughs> I sound like I see. I used to say this when I was in high school. I used to say this to my politics class, and they hated it because I was watching like Normie Con stuff, like Mark Levin. I was like, you know, I don't know what, 14 years old. And <laughs> he used to say, let me educate you. So, uh, default, let me educate you. Um, <laughs> so, he uh, grew up in the heyday of the 
early YouTube, mostly new atheist YouTubers, because those were the only people that had like serious commentary on things. And then you had like, um, this is when the Young Turks was getting big. This is when Stefan Molyu um, was still known as Steph Bot. Like, I remember this day. I remember like in 2008 going on YouTube and like when the trending bars were still relevant, you'd see like a million like atheist videos on like people and blogs and like politics. And then the politics blog in particular, the, the sort of the subcategory, you had, you had Stefan Molyneux right next to uh, the Young Turks. But anyways, the reason I mentioned this is because Adam Lanza, he managed to discover a very dark corner of the new atheists that other ones later on, the more popular ones, tried to kayfabe. He discovered the antinatalist, the, what do they call it? Effieism side of- Effieism, uh, yeah. Effieism, yeah. And so his, they actually cataloged the people that he listened to. And he listened, his favorite, one of his favorite YouTubers was Emendum. And if you don't know about this, this is ancient stuff. He's still going, by the way. He's this like crotchety, grumpy, nihilistic, misanthrope old man who, um, who like got popular for a little bit in this day of the like, atheist YouTuber where he um, projected his hate, absolute hatred of the world. Like, you know, I want to be a 15 year old misanthrope forever. Uh, onto the world, and he was instrumental in creating this. Uh, what, what do you call it? Effism. Uh, Effism. It's like it's just Ephilism. life backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so he has these rants that are the typical sort of like bastardizations of Thomas Ligotti and uh, Benatar about like you know you force people to be born. It's terrible. Life sucks. Blah blah blah. And uh, he became like if you could imagine like a schizo poster, but one is one that like lacks the charm of the sort of mystical side of schizo posting on the internet. If it's like hardcore, like misanthropy and antinatalism, this is one of them. He listened uh, to a bunch of other ones. And also it's funny enough, he, um, he watched Corey Anton, Professor Corey Anton. And Corey Anton is a YouTuber I watched for like many years, but he isn't exactly this, like he doesn't fit the bill, but he like interacted with those people. But uh, Corey Anton is more of um he is a communications professor and he talks about like neo-stoicism and online ecologies and so forth. And he isn't like exactly like one of these people, but if you actually read Lanza's chat logs, let me read you an excerpt um, where he like rails against like religion and so forth. Uh, he says here about religion, this is in, um, what is it called? The, the school shooters info. He says, um, what is wrong with culture? It restricts free thought and inflicts arbitrary prejudicial pre perspectives onto people. It, dim uh, sorry, it dismisses the difference between individuals to contrive an artificial group to which people are coerced into submission. It enables baseless bigotry between other arbitrary cultural groups and cohesion among people in the group from which there's no reason to associate. It causes people to suffer through arbitrary perspectives. Why do I pose religion as distinct from culture? It is cultural. It requires actions and encourages types of behaviors, which are based on delusions, which don't have the basis in reality. Happiness is increased, uh, sorry, happiness is increased by rationally evaluating the world and modifying your behavior. The more delusional you are, the less you're able to be happy. 
it conflates morality with religion. So I think like he got this from either Emendum or some other more philosophically minded YouTuber, probably uh, Corey Anton. But um, yeah, so how is it to be pale? Always to be covered as well as possible, avoid the sun. So again, he, he was this ethereal being. Always use sunscreen, wash your skin thoroughly and exfoliate, reduce blood pressure, donate blood every two months. Um, so yeah, why not vote, blah, blah, blah. So then he he's going along this train of sort of being a cerebellum on a stick, of being detached from all worldly concerns and so forth. But maybe, like, I'm sorry, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves with this sort of anti-culture thing. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, we should definitely dive into that because I think that, you know, that is weirdly under-discussed about, about him, uh, the shooting. I, and I think that's a very important point. I do want to back up and say that looking looking through his posts and his bookmarks which i did like a crazy person just clicked every single link looked through <laughs> at, at like 12 different snapshots of um you can see him he goes through this weird uh this weird evolution and this i'm, I'm just i'm just guessing but it, it looks like this is what it is he starts off as a very um idealistic leftist actually yeah um, and he's yeah. an anarcho-primitivist which is why he calls into zerzin's show and he has faith in this idea of the, the feral self, um, you know, also, you know, the wild self. It's returning to a primitive state, which, of course, his, um, his uh, idea of it is similar to Zerzin's, which is uh, that, you know, the, we're less aggression, uh, you know, more happiness, uh, very less work, just things that um, have been totally debunked. Um, yeah, primitive communism, like you, yeah. you go fishing in the evening, you read philosophy in the nighttime. It's not the return with a V of the modern um, far right, like Bronze Age step warrior, where it's like you return, you return to glory and power. Like it's it's very much a return to um, an idealistic, Rus like neo-Rousseauian picture, which is ironically enough itself a construct of culture. So I guess Adam Lanza philosophically owned himself there. So, right. Yeah. Well, so he, but then he wakes up, right? And then he has a moment where he's like, you know, I've, I want to liberate to my feral self, but really you need to liberate your feral self into realizing uh, life's ultimate purposelessness. And I think at some point, and I don't know if this is before or after the ephalism um, and the anti-natalist turn, he gets really into like individualist anarchism yes, and yes, libertarian so. economics. And he, he's I, like, almost I like a sternerite in some ways. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a weird, it, it's weird. Like he ends up at this sort of just like ultimate, he's, he describes himself as anti-value. He's against value. Culture is mimetic warfare, which is going back to what you were saying that every, like the reason he is so hung up on pedophilia is he sees that as the ultimate example of um, culture convincing you that something is painful and that you should feel shame for it when there, yes. when nothing is meaningful. Um, and, but he says this, he also makes an interesting point, which makes me want, he says he wasn't molested and he also doesn't seem to lie very much, but I wonder if when he says he, he wasn't molested, that doesn't mean that he didn't have sex with an adult as a child, because he says something else that's really interesting. He says the problem with culture is it makes, it makes children think that, uh, relationships with adults is trauma, but it also makes isolated people, you know, and recluses think that that is trauma when really the recluse has risen above and does not experience the deprivation of people who are more embedded. And, I, and it, it, um, 
there's a there's a blogger uh, who is also on YouTube. He goes by Blithering Genius, really, really smart guy. Um, and he makes a point like maybe like Adam's gripe against culture is, you know, obviously coming from the, these people, these thinkers who he's following, but also maybe he just, he never felt like he could blend in. And it's, it's mm-hmm. that simple. It's just, he, he felt isolated and then he was sort of righteous. Um, and, you know, you know, and in this, this isolation saying like, well, why should the isolation be bad? Like, why, why was I conditioned to think this? Why was I conditioned to think all of these things are bad? Well, he very much fits the stereotype of like the loner dejected school shooter that Dylan and Eric didn't because Dylan and Eric, they had a very different, uh, which I can get into, but about his influences, he says, um, there was that one statement in the one video called Against Culture, which has been archived by someone because, as you know, when one of these things happens, um, the social media companies, they all like take the uh, original channels down and Facebook pages and whatnot. And he says something about um, when it's, it is culture that convinces you that there is a lack of value without culture. Like, in other words, it's very much what I would call like philosophic wet brain where you're so like solipsistic and you're thinking that you're extrapolating, you're extrapolating the sort of confines of human meaning out so much to where you're reductionistically breaking things down in their individual parts and saying, well, everything's nonsensical because it's like, if culture is all there is, then culture is a construct. Then the construct, it's, it's almost like the same sort of thinking that provokes um, like an extreme aversion towards like postmodernism from like, I don't know, the James Lindsay people, because that's another thing too, which is very interesting, is that the reason I bring up new atheism and the sort of YouTube variety of it is because a lot of these new atheists, they're very uncomfortable with uh, dealing with the consequences of their thinking and the sort of nihilism that I think at least like him and a few other school shooters were inspired by these people, but also they're sort of like weird, um, you know, emendum included. And like other people, like that fake Sagan guy that used to like hang around Amazing Atheist, Amazing Atheist himself, um, TJ Kirk, and uh, like other people, they seem to have the very like, uh, what we would see as like hair-raising relationship to the concept of pedophilia in particular. Like, because again, you're deconstructing everything to its base mechanical material relations. And therefore it's like, well, of course culture doesn't make sense. But also what's funny is that when it comes to the culture war itself, people think that Gamergate was like the ground zero of the internet, but really Gamergate could only have come about because of the new atheist YouTubers, because new atheism spawned both the like original anti-SJWs, but also the quote unquote SJWs themselves, because you have this like relation between the Tumblr culture and atheism plus, and also the other side, which you have like, a lot of the early YouTubers that were in the sort of Gamergate camp, like, you know, Don Sargona himself, <laughs> what they were like atheist YouTubers at one point. So I don't know which way Adam Lanza would have gone. That's really interesting. But I think like, th- that's why I bring it up, why it's foundational to his thinking, this sort of way of approaching the world and really not in the sort of Nietzschean way of having a purpose towards vivisecting values, doing a sort of transvaluation, but rather just to destroy things for its own sake, to reveal things as meaningless ultimately. And so like right here, he says in the next paragraph, 
um, engaging your imagination to dream vividly. The philosopher Bickers, um, towards the end, they say that all of their philosophizing and such, they can't answer the simplest answer relevant to my life, such as what is good and what is evil. They contradict each other and they contradict themselves. The philosophers argue angrily and I watch them. I sit towards an edge and watch, saying that I might eventually be able to make sense of their loud clamoring. Einstein shouts from some other building uh, behind the forum, tells me the definition of insanity. I ask him how his unified theory is coming along. Touche. So he's like, really, this is like hardcore, like fedora tipping. I'm enlightened by my own intelligence. And the way he speaks... The, the sort of cadence in his YouTube channel, it's very much like I have to be the smartest person in the room. And the reason I'm the smartest person is because I've seen the illusion behind everything and everything behind it. There is literally nothing. So he says, why would I be upset over this? Perhaps it's because I personally think that the entire notion of power and authority is pathetic. So I don't feel as though I was manipulated, even though by definition I was as just, but I don't apply the societal meaning to it. So he's talking about what does med, um, medicinal practice change the nature of so he's talking about his own experiences with doctors and therapy he hates doctors for uh, obvious reasons um he says honestly the doctors touching my penis when i was a child was worse than i would be if i uh consented to an adult in a loving relationship with them i don't see how i how i and every child was not raped by doctors uh we did oh i agree with him there actually um we did not consent to it and we only did it because our parents made us which is another point. If uh, So again, the child liberation thinking is another integral part of the sort of early new atheist ethos that was banging around in the heads of people like TJ Kirk. Um, we did not consent to it. We only did it because our parents uh, made us, which is another point. If we as a society taught children that they're independent from their parents, they should not blindly follow them. They would not be amused by their parents in the way they often are. Tie this into adults enjoy subjugating children argument. Um, so he says, why does medical uh, practice change the nature of it? Number one, why would I be upset over this? Perhaps it's because I personally think the entire notion of power and authority is pathetic. So I don't feel as though I was manipulated, even though by definition I was. It's just that I don't apply that societal meaning to it. <laughs> Very Foucauldian right there. Um, why is it okay for a parent to allow an adult uh, to touch a child if they are demonstrably capable of applying reason just because they're <laughs> so again, if a ch as long as the child consents, it depends on the child. Um, just because their ch child's parents, a child should belong to their selves, um, themselves. I was coerced by an adult into having my penis stroked. This is by definition rape. This happens to virtually every child, yet everyone thinks that there is nothing wrong with this. I should, I should be uh, up to the child to decide if it's right or wrong. So again, um, I was molested at least a dozen times by a few different adults when I was a child. So he's saying that if you were to apply this like hyper-rationalist brain thinking towards relation between a doctor and a child, of course you can deconstruct the power relation to say that, well, that's coercion and that's rape and so forth, even though it's for ostensibly the good of the child to check them medically. He's saying that if there's no quantifiable difference between that and rape, then the whole category of rape and pedophilia is nonsensical, which is, I hate to say it, I'm, I'm gonna get you in trouble default, but this is very similar to the way that someone like Ayala thinks around issues of pedophilia. But that's that's my no, own. No, I mean, I'm if you want to edit that out, it's perfectly fine by me. No, I think I mean I think I think that's fair to point out because he's. I I think we I I think we underappreciate the importance of new atheism. We sort we sort yes. of feel like it's it's come and gone. It's not relevant anymore. But these but the seeds of new atheism are everywhere. 
they're, they're certainly in um, Adam's thinking, but they're throughout the internet, um, whether it's a reaction to it or it's a continuation of it. And I mean, I don't know. I don't know if Ayla was a new atheist, but she certainly is. Oh, yeah, she it, was. Is she of was. that lineage, right? You know? Oh, yes. Yeah, very much. Very much so. <laughs> I think a good example, a good example, let me really quickly, let me read you what he said to Jean Zerzan. And, and this sort of demonstrates his thinking. Um, I know I'm dominating the conversation, I'm very sorry, but it's just, um, this is relevant in terms of his sort of total out there thinking. So he logs on with a different name to John Zerzan's uh, radio show. So this is like before the age of podcasts, this is like a blog talk radio. Um, I don't know if it was on blog talk radio, but this was like the day of blog talk radio. So he's talking about Travis the Chimp Travis was this chimp that um, was basically treated like a child and could do things like a small child. He says, um, Travis the chimp is very much like an autistic small child. And uh, he attacked the friend of his owner. So he literally, he literally chimped out and uh, I believe killed the friend of his owner. And uh, so then he says- She survived and she was really, she was really disfigured and it was a huge- Oh, she was a Dr. Phil. That's right. She had the face. Yeah. Yeah. So here's here's what he said about um so Zerzan, he's like blown away. He's like, wow, fascinating. We're back. Sorry, we got Greg on the phone. Oh, Greg. Okay. How's it going? Oh, hi, good. Um, I'm a fan of your writing. Um, Thank you. I'm Thank sorry you to mess up such an old news story, but I couldn't find anything that you said about the topic. And it seems relevant to your interest, so I thought I'd bring up Travis the Chimp. Do you remember him? I don't. Well, um, he was a highly domesticated chimpanzee who lived in a suburban home in Stamford, Connecticut. Oh, yeah. Oh. And he was raised just like a human child starting from the week he was born. By the time that he was 14 years old, which would be somewhere around age 20 in human years. Uh-huh. Um, he slept in a bed. He took his own baths. He dressed himself. He brushed his teeth with an electric toothbrush. <laughs> really? When was this? Um... Well, this happened in early 2009. Oh. Oh. Um, uh-huh. He ate his meals at a table and enjoyed human foods like ice cream. And he used a remote control to watch television and liked baseball games. And he even used a computer to look at pictures on the internet. Huh. And it goes without saying that Travis was very overweight. He was 200 pounds when he should have been around the low hundreds. Mm-hmm. And he was actually taking Xanax. <laughs> Amazing. I couldn't find any information about why he was taking it, but it just seems to say a lot that he was giving it at all. And basically, I think Travis wasn't really any different than a mentally handicapped human child. Hmm. But anyway, one day in February 2009, he was acting very agitated, and at some point, grabbed the car- his owner's car keys, went outside, and started beeping from car to car, apparently wanting to go for a car ride and he was acting very aggressively. So his owner called her friend over to get her to help him to calm down and go back inside. And once she arrived, he immediately attacked her and his owner tried to stop him, but couldn't. And she even resorted to stabbing him with a knife, but nothing worked. And she said that after she stabbed him, he looked at her as if to say, why do you do that to me, mom? Because apparently that was what their relationship was like, no different than between a human mother and a human child. So after the stabbing, she called the police, who arrived 12 minutes after the attack, at which point her friend was pretty close to dead. And 
Once the cruiser came up, Travis went over to it, tried to open the locked passenger door. He smashed off the side view mirror, went over to the driver's door, opened it, and the cop shot him. He fled back into the house where he went to his playroom and bled to death. Hmm. And um, this might not seem very relevant, but I'm bringing it up because afterward, everyone was condemning his owner for saying how irresponsible she was for raising a chimp like it was a child and that she should have known something like this would happen because chimps aren't supposed to be living in civilization. They're supposed to be living in the wild among each other. Mm -hmm. But their criticism stops there, and the implication is that there's no way anything could have gone wrong in his life if he had been living in civilization as a human rather than a chimp. Ah, indeed. Isn't Chavez, um, because he brings up questions about this whole process of child raising. Um, Yeah isn't something which just happens to gently exist without us having to do anything because every newborn child, human child, is born in a chimp-like state and civilization is only sustained by conditioning them for years on end so that they'll accept it for what it is. And since we've gone through this conditioning, we can observe a human family raising a human child and I'm sure that even you have trouble intuitively seeing it as something unnatural. But when we see a chimp in that position, we visually know that there's something profoundly wrong with the situation. And it's easy to say there's something wrong with it simply because it's a chimp. But what's the real difference between us and our closest relatives? Travis wasn't an untamed monster at all. Um, He wasn't just feigning domestication. He was civilized. Um, He was able to integrate into society. He was a chimp actor when he was younger and his owner drove him around the city frequently in association with her towing business where he met many different people and got along with everyone. If Travis had been some nasty monster all his life, it would have been widely reported, but to the contrary, it seems like everyone who knew him said how shocked they were that Travis had been so savage because they knew him as a sweet child. And there were two isolated incidents early in his life when he acted aggressively, but summarizing them would take too long, so basically I'll just say that he didn't act really any differently than a human child would, and the people who would use that as an indictment against having chimps live as humans do wouldn't apply the same thing to humans, so it's just kind of irrelevant. Mm -hmm. But anyway, look what civilization did to him. It had the same exact effect on him as it has on humans. He was profoundly sick in every sense of the term, and he had to resort to these surrogate activities like watching baseball and looking at pictures on a computer screen and taking Xanax. He was a complete mess. Mm -hmm. And his attack wasn't simply because he was a senselessly violent, impulsive chimp, um, which was how his behavior was universally portrayed. Um, Immediately before his attack, he had desperately been wanting his owner to drive him somewhere. And the best reason I can think of for why he would want that, looking at his entire life, would be that some little thing he experienced was the last straw and he was overwhelmed by the life that he had and he wanted to get out of it by changing his environment and the best way that he knew how to deal with that was by getting his owner to drive him somewhere else. Yeah. And when his owner's owner's friend arrived, he knew that she was trying to coax him back into his life of domestication and he couldn't handle that, so he attacked her and anyone else who approached him. And dismissing his attack as simply being the senseless, violent impulsiveness of a chimp instead of a human is wishful thinking at best. Mm-hmm. His attack can be seen entirely parallel to the attacks 
with random acts of violence that you bring up on your show every week. Mm. Committed by humans, which the mainstream also has no explanation for. And no. Actual human. I just, just don't think it would be such a stretch to say that he very well could have been a teenage mall shooter or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And wow. Thank you, Greg. Yeah. That's quite a story. Yeah, that's uh, really apropos, isn't it? Travis yeah. the Chimp. It's just that I'm a little surprised that I never heard you bring it up at all because maybe I'm just seeing connections where there aren't any, but... Not, I think not. No, I just... I didn't catch that one. I didn't... Uh, maybe I was out of the country or something. I don't know, but I missed it. Thanks very much, man. Thank you. Take Bye. care. motive of Sandy Hook right there you know right there um it's it's which it's sort of like this edgelord thing and it's like you it's hard to believe that he really did it mm -hmm. but of course and I don't mean it's hard to believe that he really did it it was a false flag it's it's it's, it's you know this no it was it, definitely a false flag no sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, I, sorry. I am a, I'm, a, I'm a believer um oh you're too thin <laughs> I, I I will you know I will say I, I am curious where he would have ended up had this not happened, um, because I want to say he he was very preoccupied with masculinity, but I think something was going on with with him and yes. his. Uh, so, like I said, I looked through all of his bookmarks. I mean, thousands, right? This took hours. I don't know. I'm I'm absolutely insane. But the, here are some things that 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 stuck out to me. Um, Kleinfelter syndrome. The Wikipedia page for that was bookmarked. The Whoa. death of the death of David Reimer. Who, um, if you don't, mm -hmm. if people don't know who that is, he uh, there is a, a catastrophe with his circumcision, and he was castrated and then raised as a girl. Uh, and that, but he but he realized he was actually a man and ended up committing suicide. The the particular page. The part of this the David Reimer's Wikipedia page that was bookmarked again was his death and his suicide. Um, academic texts about sex differences between men and women, um, and I mean those are. And then then we circle back to his extreme hatred of doctors. Um, he also has bookmarked how to become a doctor in Japan. He was like, he was a weeaboo. I mean that was clear. Oh but, God. But I mean all of these things to me. See, it's like, no, but this is the anime on? ideal. This is like the divine antrine that certain weebs find this is i'm not i'm not gonna i read it on air on btr once but there is a certain poster prolific poster that left not gonna name names but um said something along this line of the sort of anorexic androgynous being being this like divine form and how the anime woman the waifu in particular is the platonic ideal of the, the feminine form and the masculine. So, sorry I cut you off, Default. I just had to spurg out there a little bit. No, I mean, I, I, I happen to agree with that. I mean, I think there's a lot to, a, to, a lot to go into with that. I mean, I, I but I, I think, I think there's, he, so he, he claims, he claims on a, a post um, on a, a Columbine RPG forum um, which we'll, we definitely oh have to get God. into Columbiners. We have to, we have to get into Columbiners. Yeah, we will. Next. I have a whole thesis of that. Right. Yeah. So he, he claims, yeah. he says, um, this, this, so the website's called Shocked Beyond Belief. And he says, I, I castrated myself at 15 because I'm a rebel. Um, and 
it's it is his sense of humor which is very of the time um it's yeah. very mid 2000s um and that is a that's a joke that you're that you that you see until at least uh 2012 and you see it on reddit a lot um oh and, yeah yeah you know it's 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 sort of a thing because it's because it's and it's expressed in this deadpan way where if a normie's looking at it it's they're like what the fuck did i just read but it's it, the person that never does it right it's just to freak people out but I, I have to wonder, like, where is that joke coming from? Because there is some kind of issue. He he also says at one point he thought he was asexual. Um, he, you know, there's some sort of hormone or physical problem with with his gender. The, the even when he talks about his anorexia fetish, he says that he adopted that at to rebel, and then he realized that rebelling was also buying into culture. So, yes. you know, there's, and, but being an aesthetic is also buying into, into culture. So really the only solution is just to kill yourself, which ultimately he does, but yeah, it's very much like Benatar or, well, even, well, right. CNN is a bit more poetic than that, but it very much is like the cosmic pessimism, like to even rebel against it in an act of like supreme nihilism is itself buying into culture. But then why did he then shoot up a school and did like one of like the most horrific crimes in American history, which is like, yeah. And, well, go and, ahead, and, sorry. Yeah, and, and, I mean, one more note about his sexuality, just while we're on the topic, you know, he says all these things in his bookmarks are a lot of images of just very conventionally beautiful looking women um, who are all the things that he claims not to be interested in you know, just tan, <laughs> big breasted. Yeah, like, it, I mean, it's not porn, but it's, it's like, you know. It's aesthetic what, posting. In other it's, it's right. It's, it, you, it's something you'd see on like men. Besties of baddies. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Precisely. And, you know, I just, I have to wonder, he says, he says things like, I wish I could, could cuddle um, with someone. I haven't touched someone in four years. The last person I touched was I hugged my grandmother. Uh, he's Whoa. emailing his mother um, while they're in the same house. I mean, I think there's, his, his views on women are like very proto-manosphere. Um, he says that he, oh. he, he says that his dream girl would have already killed herself. And oh his, dream, his, his dream girl is very similar to himself. You know, that he oh, would make a great father. Girl. girl, yes. Yeah, he would make a great father, but his dream girl already committed suicide and would be an antinatalist anyway. I mean, aborted just, e girl, aborted e girl. <laughs> you know, there's just, I, it, it's, it's just oh. like how much do like it's it. The I, internet I, literally fucking fried his brains. Oh it did, God. and I, I have a lot of compassion for him. I mean, he's yeah. he's he's evil, right? Like, I don't, I'm not excusing oh, or making, yeah, no doubt. you know, I don't want anyone to like take a soundbite of this and be like, oh, default friend is you know hypersexual. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, I, I was made physically ill and was irritable. Like the, you know, the whole, the whole time I was, I was researching this, but it's like, if you've, if you yourself have been very online or, or someone close to you has been very, you, I mean, you just, you see it, you see that this is, this is internet addiction do you mean, know, at its finest. Do you know the song, um, the music video, you have to actually go to a Facebook link or an Odyssey link to find it because they took it down. But uh, this is how I'm an old hat on OG, uh, you know, edgy frog Twitter. <laughs> I remember we did the content Emmys. This was when TV Ameriquois was still around. And I was in the group call because I was uh, selected for, I believe, the category of most prolific thirst poster, if I recall. Um, 
And we played, we debuted the music video for, uh, at that time he was known as School Shooter, Negative XP's Bad Vibes. And if you look at that music video and you look at um, something like that, the one OGF, like you see the sort of combination of edgy misogyny and edgy like school shooting Columbiner stuff in anime and um, specifically shown in anime um, and like various other tropes that are bred and sort of germinate in like extremely edgy online culture. And I remember like that music video, it's like so catchy because it really, um, it embodies all of that. But uh, yeah, I think that the Columbiner thing is interesting though. But if you want to say a few words, because I, I have like this whole spiel about the difference between Adam Lanza and like uh, Dylan and Eric. Yeah, uh, sure. I mean, I, I'll, I'll just introduce the, the next section of our, our, our sprawling analysis <laughs> of Adam Lanza. Um, yeah, so he was obsessed. He was, he was a Columbiner. And, and if this is what, you know, I've, my listeners are often like default, I don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I like your voice. You sound like Sarah Silverman. You know, it's just like, um, <laughs> love to hear it. Uh, <laughs> uh, so you say funny words. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so Colin Biners are uh, an online subculture that have been, uh, I mean, totally just like raped by the, you know, uh, authenticity industry, like Vice and whatever. Um, and oh God! Yeah, they're yes. mostly you know they're they're also known as hybristophiles, but they they aren't always. Um, they're they're on Tumblr and on forums, and they are it's the Columbine fandom, and usually it encompasses other um, people who've committed mass casualty events. And I say that because it's not necessarily school shooters, and it functions just like your a regular fandom. They draw fan art. They have podcasts. They have personality quizzes. I mean, anything that you could, that you would see in like a, a Harry Potter fandom or, uh, you know, Rent or, you know, Euphoria, you will also see in the Columbine fandom. And it's, it's super weird. And I mean, you know, I, the, the only thing I've written in my notes here is who's attracted to Columbine and, and why I can't, you know, it's, it's, there's no, oh, there's no qualitative yeah. difference between these people. Um, and, I mean, like I said, like a, like someone who's like just super into Sherlock, they're the same people. Like they, they, it's yeah. the same dude. And it's, it's a, it's a really, really weird thing. And it's so weird. And this will be my last note before I, I, I hand you the mic. Um, you know, when I was looking through, uh, you know, checking up on the, on, on the Columbiners, I followed a bunch on Twitter and they're like, they're, they have like, they're all their pinned tweets are like, I don't tolerate transphobia or racism, PLM. <laughs> I'm like, bitch, what? you want to fuck Eric Harris and you don't Who tolerate- said N-word as he blasted it's a black guy away? I mean, like, what, what the fuck? Look at How this N-word. How Listen, is- Dylan and Eric, they would be on the online right nowadays. If they were alive, they would be reading Bronze Age Mindset and they would be reading- they would be reading the harassment architecture by Mike Ma. I know. I mean, what I wanted to say was before, and I guess I just forgot to because I went on that tangent about David Reimer. Yeah. Would I wonder if Adam Lanza would have just like evolved into a Baptist because he was so concerned with masculinity, but he was also like too much of. I don't. I don't think he literally no, was schizophrenic, he but he was too much of a schizo poster, and it's hard to to parse yeah. where he would have fallen because he's so he's part of that that era of the internet that's actually fringe and actually scary and actually kind of impenetrable and weird and edgy in a true sense. 
yeah, he wouldn't have been a Baptist. He just, just no way. He, he doesn't have the, the tools to do it physically and mentally. I think that he would have probably been one of these weirdo internet schizos. Um, not as much like into esoteric stuff, the way that like, you know, oh God, I can't even say this, but like the way that like, you know, Kaliak was or whatever, Kali acceleration, you're like, he, he would have been, I think probably, he would have been on the same trajectory that people like the amazing atheist was on. I think he would have been like this weird mix of edgy libertarian antinatalism, but I wonder what 2016 would have done to him. I wonder if right? he would have because like, yeah, he, ha- but he, he has this, he has this attraction to traditional masculinity and all of these and Nietzsche. And I mean, like you just, it, it, but it seems like he's scared of it because he can't actualize it. And so he rejects it, which is an interesting yeah. thing. Um, and I, I wonder if maybe as he matured and kind of got a little less edgy and loosened up and maybe became a little happier. And I say this, you no know, hate to anyone I'm, I'm evoking here, but if he would have been like a logo reply guy. Oh God. Oh, I, that's, I, <laughs> just, you know what? No, I, I don't know. Wholesome just, Chungus Ron Paul Maoist. Is that what you <laughs> I don't know. I mean, because I'm trying to imagine like where where would he have belonged? And um, I mean, that's that's what that's one option. Uh, and it doesn't seem so crazy. Um, I could see him being sort I of I could have seen him being seduced by the thinker of ironies, uh logo's best friend. I could see him being seduced by that type of uh right. Doesn't that contrary seem like posting, yeah. Kind of right. Like he dabbles and then ultimately makes a turn. I don't know. That's he's um, like one of he's like one of those internet people that like either you read Nietzsche or Deleuze, but let's say Nietzsche, you read Nietzsche, you become like hyper-fash Bronze Age step warrior, or you read Nietzsche, you become some like weirdo, like half trans, like, <laughs> I guess, wholesome Ron Paul Maoist, like Chungus type of person. It's okay, like- Okay, here's the question, yeah. would, he have, would he have transitioned? I mean, this is probably getting into, I'm getting myself canceled. This is going behind a paywall. And I ask this not to, I, I asked. Oh, no, no, not for, the paywall. No. This is going ahead. Of, but would, maybe I cut this part out. But I mean, like genuinely, would he have transitioned and would he have would it would that have given him some peace? Well, he was alienated from the body sufficiently. So there's always there's the groundwork there for it. I mean, the way that he has a very like detached view of the male body, it's et cetera, like the way he has a sort of alienation from his own body, but also I think he follows the patterns of like a lot of different people who either create like schizophrenic personality disorders or who um, create like these narcissist cults of personality on the internet or become lol cows because he has this like weird relationship to his mother, especially. Oh, like, yeah, he- see it. I could see a Kiwi Farms thread on Adam Lanza in a universe. <laughs> no, because like Chris Chan, right? Like. The, the relationship to the like single um, strong maternal presence, but also the repulsion to the maternal presence. There's a lot of like ideologues on both the far left and right who have that same complex. There's a lot of like e-grifters who have that same thing. There's like, of course, Chris Chan. There's like that sort of, the, the, the maternal figure becomes like the terrible, like consuming mother figure. And so, Another parallel would be between him and someone like Ed, Edward Kemper, who had this like quasi, for those who don't know, he was also a prolific serial killer, but he was hyper intelligent and articulate. 
And before he went on his initial killing spree, he killed his mother, uh, ate, ate her and so forth. Um, and he would, ha- he had this like quasi incestuous relationship with his mother, maybe not like physically, but also like, like, you know, emotionally. Right. Cause he was a 40 year old dude still living with his mother. And Adam Lanza exhibits a lot of the same traits where he wants to rebel, but he can't until that moment of crisis. Because remember, before he went to the school where his mother was a teacher, if I recall, right? Um, he killed his mother in her home. And so they were like, why didn't she show up to work today? But then, you know, as we know, Adam showed up to work. So um, I think, but also like about the Columbiner thing, I'm very curious to know, like, they're actually on Twitter and like, why do they have, maybe because it's a symptom of like Tumblr fandom culture, but why would they like of all people have like hashtag trans rights as human rights and BLM in their pile? Because if you actually like go and read what, especially Eric Harris believed in, like there's like eugenics, there's like racism, there's like edgelord stuff. Like they literally would be like an online edgelord. Like they would, you know, if they were, if they didn't do what they did, like I'm certain Dylan and Eric would be like luminaries of like far right um, racist posting on Twitter. I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced of this. <laughs> I don't know. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's the weirdest thing. Um, and on Twitter, they just call it a true crime Twitter or I, maybe it's not, it doesn't stand for true crime. It's TCC, which I, let me, I'm just going to look this up because maybe I'm getting this wrong. Um, because what would the other C stand for? Um, true crime content. Oh, okay, so true TC true true crime community. Yeah. So oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe they they're kind of you know putting you know it's 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 really it's it's weird. Um, I think there's sort of this imagined view um, that they you know it's it's kind of like when people um, assume that or like have head cannons about certain characters and they're like oh well, i see in, yes, in yes. reality you know this character is trans they were losers they were like the trans they were like the trans rebel that that fought against the evil cis hetero white uh white hat uh bully jocks and they were like blasting them away like that's you know that's just like me a trans rebel that blasts the evil white cis hetero jocks this is that what you mean like um yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's just a reimagine. It I because I feel like what happens with fandom is that you use um you you use the character and the story in the world as a shell to project your own desires and it creates boundaries. So you know, kind you know, not even what is or isn't possible, but just it just it creates it just creates very loose boundaries around it, right? And like yeah. in your own version of it, you know, Paul McCartney can get pregnant with John Lennon's baby or, or you know, whatever <laughs> fandom you're part of. And yeah, that's yeah. a real example, by the way. You know, <laughs> that's not even- The Winchesters. Uh, are in love, Twincest, you know? Um, yeah, there you go. I mean, that's I mean, that's the weird thing and why it, it makes Adam so hard to parse is because is, is the 13 year old girl obsessed with Twincest and Supernatural actually interested in incest well, not really. And it, it, it's, you know, she might say that, but once that girl starts having sex and is, is more embedded in the, the real world, she's, she, she's probably just like vanilla and like just a normie ass bitch. Like, you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's she, I mean, it's, it's just like these, these, like words don't mean what they mean in these communities. And it would, it, you would imagine that this would apply to, to Adam as, as well, you know, no matter how obsessed you are 
Um, it never means anything until you go out and get real life experience. And that's why the law cows are so exceptional because they do sort of rise above and they, they're, they are the ones who do the thing, who mutilate their bodies or go out in public with the blue wig or, or whatever, because yeah, no one else is actually Yeah, have the sign that says want women, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. Because no one what? I was going to say, let's, let's get into Columbiners. What's, let's, what's your, what's your take? I have many, I have many takes on this. I was actually going to write something on this for the 20th last year. It was the 20th anniversary, but I figured that, well, I was just too lazy, but like, I figured that, um, it would be too edgy. My thesis is that, um, I've, you know, it's funny, ironically enough, is that I've actually done a, a little bit of uh, Columbine fan art but I, I would never release it. It's just too, maybe one day, maybe one day. But um, my thesis is that there is something about the cultural imagination of millennials that Columbine represents an archetypal force. It represents the sort of more, I would think just as equally as 9-11, just as equally as 2008, just as equally as Gamergate. Although Gamergate's like sort of crossing over into Zoomer territory. I think that Columbine is so powerful in the millennial psyche for a reason, because it is a mythopoetic event. It doesn't mean, but what I mean by mythopoetics is I don't mean that it didn't happen. I don't mean it's a conspiracy. I don't mean like it's myth in the colloquial way that um, people think is not real. Mythopoetics is the sort of generative aspect of mythology that is imbued within each generation or within each sort of ethnogenic group or in this case, a generational divide. So Dylan and Eric represent a sort of dark romanticism of the millennial psyche, of the sort of, because they have the aesthetics and they have, because aesthetics in the millennial and Zoomer mind is literally a dialectical image in the sense that an image can operate as a placeholder for ideology and for culture and for thinking. The dialectical image can serve as a sort of repository for various, let's call them um, cultural waypoints. So Dylan and Eric, the Trenchcoat Mafia, the romanticized, the dark romanticized image of Dylan and Eric is this dialectical image. It's very easy to translate that into a sort of pseudo identification, but also as a whole, the sort of plague on the millennial psyche of the school shooter. Because there has been other school shooters like Adam Lanza, like Omar Mateen, like all, like Nick Diaz, right? Um, that uh, is was his name Nicholas Diaz or was it Nate? Uh, it, was, it was Nicholas. Yes, yes. There have been other ones, or or VTech. Nobody remembers VTech, right? There are other ones who have higher body counts who fit the archetype of I am an edgy loner and nobody likes me and, and people bully me and I'm going to like release my anger on the school this like site of uh, dejection. There are other ones that fill that archetype more than Dylan and Eric, but why is it that Dylan and Eric as this buddy team have this sort of mythic millennial uh, archetypal importance? Why do they have that meaning? It's because they have that aesthetic template because they have that force. And even, um, even Adam Lanza himself, talked about it. So let me read you from the that particular blog that you were uh, talking about. Where is it here? Um, here it goes. Shocked beyond belief. 
Um, so he says moments that restored your faith in humanity. So I guess this is a thread subheader category. So this is preceding a few images of Dylan. So moments that restore your faith in humanity. This is from August 30th, 2011. I'm normally not interested in non-Kaczynski bombers, but the format and organization of everything involved was such an impressive instance of mass murder self-actualization that it seemed fictional. I wouldn't call it encouraging, but it seems mo seemed motivational enough in some sense that it was the kind of thing you would find a particularly um, macabre self-improvement book, probably owing to watching too many mass murder movies and he was obsessed with this um, made-for-TV movie. Um, I forget what it was called. But uh, also another thing too is that when it comes, like going back to the pedophilia thing, he talks about um, how... He says, quote, uh, the, the Conrad, uh, what, what's the guy's name? Oh, God, I forgot it right now. The guy that was on To Catch a Predator that killed himself. Uh, what's his oh, name? Oh, yeah, he's, he was obsessed. With, I'll, I'll look that up really quickly. Yeah, yeah. But he says that he suffered more than even Matthew Shepard. And that um, nobody talks about it because, of course, he's a pedophile. But anyway, so he's saying that. Uh, probably owing to watching too many mass murder movies, reading excerpts like this about almost had me at the edge of my seat. So it was an excerpt from Anders Breivik about how he went on a farm and he was searching around with his Glock and uh, he, he, I don't know, some, some like forum post. Then they were talking about Pump Up Kicks, the song, about is it the song of mass shooters? Then he says, are you a virgin? So someone asked him this. Are you underweight? I used to think I was asexual, but the primary reason why I was thought thought that is because my BMI was 14. Um, what are you watching right now? He's talking about, oh yes, yes. The John Rodson documentary, Death in, the, Death in Santa Land. Then he also mentions um, Protocol by Media. He mentions the film from the 60s, Target. Um, and of course he mentions this other instance in the UK. Um, Dun Dumbland, Dublin, Dublin, uh, the UK Columbine. So again, this is a Columbine forum and they're talking about this. But so anyways, um, when it comes to Columbine, the cultural imagination of it, I think that um, there was this great interview with the painter and the illustrator, Joe Coleman, who is, uh, he was very involved in like punk illustration and like lowbrow comics and other sort of like American oddities type of culture. And he does these like elaborate tapestries where he uses um, a jeweler's loop and a like few, uh, a single hair brush to do very intricate details. And he does these like tapestry paintings of different like um, outsider cultural figures. He like illustrates their whole life in text and image around them. So he does like the serial killer, Albert Fish. He does, uh, he did uh, Richard Ramirez. He did, I think, uh, some, like, that type of stuff, you know. Um, and so he was talking about what it is about serial killers that are so imbued in the sort of current, current cultural imagination. And he said, you know, when I was growing up, they had cowboy and Indian movies. They had sort of like, you know, uh, John Wayne. But that's sort of like too folky. That's like sort of too... Um, kitsch if you will you know that's that's too colloquial for the current cultural imagination whereas he says the serial killer 
is like the last expression of like total outsider culture because you really can't have a cultural like you you can but like among themselves you can't have um easily appropriated cultural tropes that are generated by serial killers but my thesis i wrote this article a few years ago ironically enough for the 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 paper that was run by um the thinker of ironies but it's it's in it's archived in my wordpress on content-minded volume one i think where I talk about the school shooter being the next logical evolution of that. Because nowadays, because of the true crime thing, because like true crime is almost like this pornographic thing for people, especially women, I hate to say it. Um, it's, it is again becoming like culturally sanitized. It's everywhere. True crime is everywhere. It's podcasts, it's series. And for some reason, like I remember my, my folks would even like watch that show Forensic Files. And it's like, you can't get enough of it, right? But now I think in my my article I wrote, I, I mentioned uh, the book by Anthony Burgess of Clockwork Orange, how like the future in the UK would be like these violent, vicious, nihilistic youth gangs and how they were almost like these soldiers rebelling, like these, you know, guerrilla soldiers rebelling against the modern world, how like Alex and his boys, his droogs, they would wear combat boots. But I said that that thesis is almost truncated in the sense that it's truncated because the school shooter, apart from Dylan and Eric, represent the singular act of total depravity against the sort of unifying context of their lives, which is, you know, school, right? And when they kill themselves afterwards, it's like they're staying in that adolescent mode forever. Like Dylan and Eric, like the Columbiners, they go on about what if Dylan and Eric were to have survived? What if they didn't do it? What their life would have been? But yet they are stuck in that cultural time warp. But even like the, the nihilistic and violent youth gangs imagined by Anthony Burgess, that itself is not extreme enough because the school shooter, the spree killer is the ultimate form of rebelling against our sort of like hyper real digital age by going into the IRL as a loner, as a loner and, and committing acts of nihilistic destruction and depravity. So I know that's like totally like out there Maybe I'm like just being an edgelord myself, but I think that there's something to the sort of cultural fascination. Because remember, Dylan and Eric, they were not the picture that the Columbiners have in their heads. They were not these dejected losers. Dylan had a girlfriend who was going to go to school prom, and Eric himself was the school bully. The, the, the white hats that they talk about, the jocks, they were terrified of him. And in fact, he grew up um, playing sports himself. So, and so both of them did not fit the stereotype. They were the sort of, I'm not going to say overman, but they were, they were sort of like this, the, the, the outsiders who weren't like picked upon nerds. They were like truly the, the, like, you know, people that you were scared of or that garnered respect from the very people that they thought did not respect them. Right. Especially Dylan. Dylan was like, from what, what we know, like, quote unquote, pussy slayer or whatever. Like, yeah. I mean, this is the irony. Adam Lanza on the flip side is the mirror image idolizing yes. Dylan and Eric. And he is the, he is the nerd. He is the bullied kid. He is the person who can't survive in society, which drives him to being, you know, like we said before, anti-value, um, yes. you know, now I'm, I'm going to read, uh, something that he wrote, um, from his, from his essay, My Antinatalism, or sorry, his, his YouTube video. And I'm actually taking this selection from a beautiful essay called 
uh, The Ghost of Adam Lanza that I, I'm going to link in the show notes. And I think everyone should read. This is a, Whoa. I can't, I can't commend this, this writer enough. Um, Who's it written by? Um, Blithering Genius. He also has a, a wonderful YouTube channel. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, he's a really, really sharp guy. I, I, I was actually going to invite him on last minute, but I'm not sure what time zone he's in. Um, but anyway, this is, here's, here, um, to, to me, this is sort of the motive as much as his, his John Zerzan appearances. Um, and here, he, here it is. I was not, and I am not in some existential crisis. I have never had the slightest problem with the obvious non-existence of free will, objective purposes, and all that. I have always been entirely psychologically capable of accepting my own subjective values and goals, even though I know that they are consummately inconsequential. And it doesn't bother me at all. The problem is not that I seek meaning and cannot find it. The problem is that I do feel immense meaning, and so does everyone else who is alive. Meaning is an abstract interpretation of value, which exists only because of life. Just as I sought to eradicate the delusional values which culture infected me with, the final solution is the termination of my life to rid myself of all value. A solution cannot be to embrace some aspect of life as if the erosion of delusions is the cause of this. Life is what originally caused me to have value and changing my life will never do anything but create different delusions than the one I already have. Unfortunately, as of right now, I lack the discipline to commit suicide and to rid myself of the values which delude me, even though I recognize a solution to life is death. But I do commend others who commit suicide. They've freed themselves from culture life and all value. They've freed themselves from themselves. And, you know, if you put this in context of his, his fascination with Columbine, I mean, he really does make Eric and Dylan the Uber mention. What was, so you mean that they freed themselves from the sort of the burden of carrying on within culture, within the, like he specifically means Dylan and Eric, they've sort of freed themselves of this burden of maintaining the illusion of culture is that what you mean yeah oh wow holy crap yeah so to him they are the ubermensch they are uh, <laughs> oh that's crazy that's yeah i mean whoa. it's so it's like you know i just i feel like haunted having read that because it's so he, like he, he'll never know you know what i mean it's it's just it's it's real. i mean it's really sad i mean it's sad for all the reasons that of course, it's sad. This is a, a, an act of depravity that we don't have the language to describe. Um, but I mean, it's it's it, his own the pain that you know. If, if we believe that it it really he really was in this pain, it wasn't just being an edge lord. I mean, it's it's you, it's impossible to fathom. But notice how Dylan and Eric they become they they have various. Um, Dylan, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this. Dylan Eric becomes a hyper object because, because they sort of have um, they're very like rhizomatic in the sense that different cultures have appropriated them for different purposes. So there is like the right wing edge lord version, which doesn't get talked about for like you know obvious reasons, um, which is like Dylan and Eric. They were into like social Darwinism. They listened to death metal. They were racist. Um, they wanted to get rid of the scum you know, natural selection, wrath, they embodied almost like a quasi, like, like an, like a right-wing appropriation of Nietzsche almost. Then there's like the Columbiner, which is like Tumblr fandom culture, which is like, they were these beautiful, you know, yaoi-like and misunderstood people that were bullied by the evil white cis hetero, um, you know, school, like 90s culture, 
was still like the jock, like the bully movie, you know? Um, I don't think I, I'm, I'm going to jump in and offer a correction there. Um, oh, but I have I another think, one too, but go ahead. Okay, go, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say that the, t- the I last don't think, uh, I'll just, I'll just, sorry. I'll just, I'll just yeah, say go. <laughs> the, the Tumblr, the Tumblr fandom, I do not think sees, see them as the gentle little boy. I think they see them. I think the Columbine fandom as it's expressed on Tumblr operates just like the death note fandom like they oh. know light yagami is you know Evil. fucking crazy and they but they love it and that like that's sexy and like it they they but in their mind it's neutered of its danger like obviously like if you actually took light seriously that's a scary fucking character but not if you're decontextualizing it's lordism yeah, yeah it's exactly lord yeah exactly no but so the last one of course which was in a lot of ways the impetus of the which ties to Adam Lanza is the impetus of the like internet atheist culture, which is in the mid nineties, early two thousands, you still have the sort of dying inklings of the evangelical religious, right? Who not the religious, right, but rather like evangelical youth culture, which took Dylan and Eric, they took the Casey story in particular, like, uh, you know, this cast, sorry, Cassie, um, what was her last name? There was a Flyleaf song about it, Cassie. You know, uh, I, uh, so like they took that and they saw that Dylan and Eric was like the force of like atheist youth culture that is rebelling against, you know, the young evangelical Christian summer camp type of thing. On Sunday, the congregation of West Bowles Community Church spent the day mourning the death of 17-year-old Cassie Bernal even as they rejoiced in her life. We now want you to uh, celebrate with us as we show you a tribute to Cassie. This is where Cassie spent most of her free time. This is where she found her way back from her life as a dark, suicidal, and violence-prone teen. And this is where her death has inspired other teenagers to find meaning in what many have been quick to label a senseless tragedy. You really can't live without Christ. It's like impossible to really have a true life without him. These teenagers, most of them survivors of the mayhem at Columbine High, believe Cassie is a modern day martyr, a young woman whose faith in God was so strong that even as death loomed over her in the high school library, she refused to renounce her faith. Yes, I believe. A gunman came to Cassie and said, do you believe in God? And she said, yes. Why would they ask her that? Because they knew. And they killed her. But that was like viciously mocked and critiqued in mainstream culture, along with the thesis that because they listened to Marilyn Manson and KMFDM, that they were like, you know, the devil music inspired them to kill people or that their atheism inspired them to kill people. That was like viciously mocked in the sort of Malena lol new atheist John Stewart culture at the time that later culminated into Occupy Wall Street, then into, into various aspects of Reddit and Tumblr culture. Um, and weirdly, that's yeah. the explanation that holds up. Yeah. <laughs> if you really get yeah, down yeah. to it, that's, you know, is satanic panic so crazy <laughs> looking back to <laughs> 2022? It was it all real, by the way. It's all real. <laughs> you know, it, I don't, it's, it's crazy, but how crazy is it? You know, like, exactly. <laughs> No, but the the story of Cassie was fictitious in the sense that they couldn't confirm nor deny if like 
they they if like Eric asked her if she believed in God because he, she had a cross on, you know, my 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 other thesis is that Flyleaf introduced a whole generation of white women to to screaming and to <laughs> and to death and to death growls. But that's another, you know, that's another thesis for another time. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that the explanation of that is again another sort of shelling point for millennial culture in general. I think that as time goes on, the Zoomers are not going to have that same thing because we lived through the sort of like new atheism, life doesn't have any meaning. Then later millennials, when we got older, we sort of like bent the knee to the social, the new sort of religiosity of progressive politics uh, in ways that Zoomers that were like sort of instantiated in online culture it's like it's like what me and you were talking about with uh with Elliot Roger and with Adam Lanza that they were sort of like in some ways, like really the darker aspects of being like e pioneers, of being like the pioneers of forum culture and the internet, being like the sort of generation that explored these spaces. Um, but nowadays, I feel that um, Col- I wonder if Columbine translates as well into the millenn- into the Zoomer experience as opposed to the millennial one. I wonder if there's like a qualitative difference there or if there's still like the sort of myth of the school shooter is still like going very strong among Zoomers. I mean, I guess the Zoomers, they have the, uh, I guess they have uh, the David Hogg guy and uh, the the other bald chick, what's her name, Gonzalez. But I don't know, I don't know. No, I mean, I, I wonder that too, because it does feel like there's definitely Zoomers who I, I feel like there's two kinds of Zoom, two kinds of Zoomers, um, at least in terms of this, the spectrum. There's the one who affects being very online, but in fact, clearly grew up embodied um, yeah. and has real life friends. And um, that's, I'm going to bleep this out, but that's like, for example, again, bleeping this out, but, <laughs> um, yeah. but I mean, like, you know, it's sort of seen like those that's they're not I don't buy it for a second they're just not it's just obvious it's, they have a, sex. it's an appropriation of <laughs> right but there are very online zoomers in a, in a real sense and all over the place um and I'm sure you know some um and you true law cows I mean they they really run the gamut so I don't so I don't really know I don't really know what what the contours of their generation end up being because there's a there's a mix of there's a mix of both and I could see it I could see you know half a dozen of one half a dozen of the other with the zoomers i I, i've heard that like zoomers though um from people i shouldn't even mention the forum i shouldn't i will not i won't mention the forum's name but they said that um this one particular anime forum said that zoomers really don't go outside or like they don't have they don't have the interaction of like friends within a party environment they more have like a close group of friends and they have like the online world and they don't like necessarily go out and do things like quote unquote IRL. It's more of like everything is mediated through this like, you know, online world. And even like the stuff they do IRL is sort of like mediated by online entities in a way. Like, I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, but I think there's something, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm being a little bit, I don't know, myopic here or something. I feel like there's something a little bit different if you're online if you're if you're a creature of the social internet that's one that's its own you know list of hang-ups and baggage and Mm -hmm. um, you know all my love because like that's it's not it's not pretty but that's not being a creature of 
anonymous and pseudonymous spaces in the same way. And I think a lot of, I think most Zoomers, and this is just my guess, are, um, are hopelessly addicted or shaped by social media. But if you're yeah. shaped by YouTube, right, which is not really social media, it's something, it's something else. If you're shaped well, I by- I was shaped by YouTube. I was right. one of those kids. Yeah. You're shaped by anime forums, um, which uh, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I have name searched and I like what I found. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, thank you guys. Uh, it's a totally different. It's a totally different situation. Yeah, I know it's true. I think. Well, the funny thing is, like, I won't like someone who like really didn't go hardcore onto YouTube in terms of posting until a few years ago. It's funny because, like, literally since early YouTube, I was on there. I was like. There hasn't been a day in my life for as long as I can remember where, well, apart from when I was like a little kid, <laughs> where I wasn't on YouTube, like doing either listening to music or watching something like most hours of the day center around YouTube. But I don't like fully consider myself a quote unquote YouTuber because that is a different category. But um, I think we're sort of like straying from the topic. What you wanted to talk about is that what is it? with certain school shooters and certain lol cows, I guess you could say, um, and, you know, maybe the two mixed, uh, um, what is it with their obsession with like anarcho-primitivism and the sort of like thinking around the obliteration of culture and the sort of techniques in the technological society that gives rise to culture? I think you were trying to ask that, like, you know, the works of Jacques Ellul and Zerzan, like, what is it about if you look at the motive, what I'm trying to say is if you look at the motives of school shooters or other, like, you know, again, perpetrators of mass casualty events, a lot of them really like Ted K. And in fact, think that Ted K, in some cases, is sort of a pussy and could have taken it a step further. You know, they start with Zerzan and they're like, eh, Zerzan's not quite far enough. Right. And then they'll, they'll read, a, they'll, they'll go into Ted K, then they'll read a lull and then they'll misinterpret a lull. And then it's like this whole thing. And it's like, this is a media studies grad student who's just gone off the rails. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, yeah. They'll read like, well, they won't read Derek. Well, yeah, they'll read Derek Jensen. Maybe like they'll, I think um, it was in his book in, in the meaning, um, meaning beyond words where he's like, well, the famous or rather infamous quote by uh, Derek Jensen um, why are we talking about environmental activism when there's a real possibility that we could just blow up a dam and that would probably like save more fish and save more wildlife than like, you know, talking about carbon credits or whatever. Like that's, but then, you know, but then nowadays Derek Jensen becomes like this um, quote unquote canceled figure because he dares question the uh, certain Gnostic uh, cult of identity that, you know, shall remain nameless. Um, you know, it's just, there is something there. I think, well, like even reading the technological society by a little in preparation, uh, he talks about, so this is at the very end um, when it comes to technology and man. So he talks, it's basically, uh, Elul is interesting because he takes like a less theory cell approach and he talks about the genealogy of technology because you have to remember that what he talks about in terms of technique technique comes before science it comes before civilization even and he does it in a way that sort of is in harmony with thinkers like heidegger and thinkers like you know ted k and zirzan and so forth but here he talks about um 
how technology shapes man. So he says that uh, the techniques, technician anticipates rather, uh, but he says that um, they're not genuine ends, but merely results. And so the results-based society, um, and of course, efficiency is the, like the main vector of, of technique. So he says he understands his methods, which he applies with satisfaction because they yield immediate results. The technician anticipates results, but as it is said, they're not genuinely ends, but merely results. And then he makes the great leap into unknowing to the unknown and finds the explanation of everything and the answer to all possible objections, the myth of man. The technician either does not believe in the myth or at all, or believes it is only superficiality. It represents for him a ready-made and com comfortable conviction. A ready answer to all criticisms is the justification, but scarcely a conscious one. Why indeed should the technician justify himself? He feels in no way guilty. His good intentions are clear as they are excellent. Results are undeniable. No, the technician has no need of justification. And even if the ever slight... Uh, slightly uh, doubtful um, were to penetrate his consciousness, his answer would be as clear as it would be his, his staggering. That man from whom I am working on, humanity, the species, the proletariat, the race, man, the creature, man, the eternal, even you, all technical systems, whether they be expressed as communism or in liberal phraseology, liberal phraseology, come back to the final analysis to the abstraction all technicians too. The technicians in any case do not have sufficient intellectual curiosity to ask themselves what their favorite abstraction really seems to be. So he's saying that all of life comes under technique and someone that is questioning the very boundaries of society, they question why is efficiency maxing? Why is the sort of machinations of technique? Why are they the ultimate good, the ultimate ends to the point where every aspect of society can become inframed become standing reserve and could become quantifiable. Even as, you know, Elul says, even the human subject itself can become uh, subject to technique in various ways. So then in the page over, he says, um, let me see. I have this point about religion here, but then he talks about, let me, let me search for the highlight. Oh, here we go, here we go. This is the important part. Page 280, what is it, 383. Here too, the human being becomes a kind of machine and his machine controlled activity becomes a technique. The technical civilization profits by the mechanization, by this mechanization. The individual by means of the discipline imposed on him by sport, not only plays and finds relaxation from the, ver from the various compulsions to which he is uh, subjected, but without knowing it trains himself for new computations, a familiar process is repeated, real play and enjoyment, contact with the air, water, imp imp improvisation and spontaneity all disappear. These values are lost to the pursuit of efficiency, Re records, strict rules, training in sports makes of the individual an efficient piece of, of apparatus, which is henceforth unacquired, unacquainted with anything that the harsh enjoyment of exploiting his body and, and uh, win, winning. The most important thing, however, is not the education of a few specialists, but the extension of the sporting mentality to the, to the masses. Insofar as there represents a vigorous reaction um, to mere passivity of spectator sports, it is good. But the usual result is the in, in, uh, integration of more and more innocence, uh, um, innocence 
into an insidious technique. So he's saying that even um, what we perceive as leisure activities is then obliterated in the auspices of technique. It is everything that becomes efficiency maxing. So even sports itself trains you towards certain efficient ends. Even what you find in sort of like the, you know, especially North American obsessions with work and obsessions with productivity, that becomes the sum total pursuit of being. And if you're someone like Adam Lanza, you're looking at this and you're seeing the sort of like nonsensical nature of it. And you're seeing like, why is this so? Why is efficiency the sum total of being itself? And so I think that's why a lot of like spree killers and people who like, quote unquote, rebel against society, why they find this thinking so um, oddly comforting in a way. And then of course, you know, he talks about uh, how this relates to religion and so forth. I mean, I highly recommend the technological society by Jacques Alou. It's like, it gets technical in the middle of it. Like he's explaining the sort of historical development of technique from like the ancient world to Christianity to nowadays. He's saying that along the way technique finds ways in which it can discursively subvert various stop gaps towards its ends. So for example, Christianity in the Islamic world, they outlawed usury, right? And they outlawed the sort of like maximizing of productivity above all else within religious life, within Christendom. Uh, you know, Sunday was historically the day where you're not productive, but then various merchant forces without naming who they were, uh, were given the role of maximizing technique and efficiency by being allowed to, you know, use usury and things of that nature. And then usury builds modern economies, the modern economies. And he says the economization of all life really extends technique. And uh, I think that's why like hardcore anti-tribal people <laughs> read Jacques with various success or, or, or failures, but you know, but I think like he explains the genealogy quite well of how the ways in which, you know, Heidegger and other philosophers get sort of caught in their own Baroque systems. Um, the technological society is a way that harmonizes quite well with thinkers like Zerzan and Heidegger and Ted Kaczynski even, but in ways Ted that- Ted Kaczynski sort of, was yeah. inspired by Alul. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it, you know, with this explanation, it, it's not easy, but it's, you could like conceptualize like how you get from there to just being anti-life period. Hmm, interesting. I, I don't know. At least to me, it's, it like feels like, you know, suddenly, I, I think if you, if you hear this and then you adopt, uh, you know, the position that this is inevitable, then it kind of wraps back around to like, well, fuck it, you know, burn yeah. it all down. Yeah. <laughs> Nature is the enemy as the uh, evilists would say, or evilists, I guess is a better pronunciation. <laughs> you know, the first time I heard uh, Lanza say that, I thought he was saying like evola, like an evolist. And I was like, oh, that's strange. <laughs> Let me look into that. Nope. Totally different. Just <laughs> the lively oh 4,000 person large community of ethalists. But I don't know, because like in defense of, of Alul and Ted K and um, well, we didn't mention Lincola. Uh, I was talking actually to my good friend, um, on my podcast, um, it's going to come on in a few weeks. My good friend, Echo Autist, who, uh, well, he's known by many names from Twitter. You know, he was OG Frog, right? Um, and he uh, was, we were talking about the sort of like Lincola 
and like graph Twitter. And um, for those who don't know, graph Twitter was sort of like, uh, it comes from, I believe, a graph that was from a data scientist in the 70s in the Club of Rome that talks about how mass civilization, it's very similar to the thought of like John Michael Greer, where mass civilization can't cope with its own contradictions because life expectancy will go down, production will go down, um, mortality will go up, uh, all these like sort of negative integers of society, like childlessness will go up and so forth. And so people like colloquially termed it the graph. And like, of course, this is like the far right side of environmental thinking, like quote unquote, eco-fascism. I don't see how like that thinking can graft on to, I can see how it can graft off to ethylism and to like, you know, antinatalism and to like the leftoid side, I guess you could call it of like, you know, misanthropy, <laughs> like, but yet at the same time at the heart of people like Ted Kaczynski and Petty Linkola and to an extent Elul, uh, because, you know, Elul was like a religious, like Catholic thinker as well. Um, so I, I don't see like their compulsion to preserve life and to preserve creation. There is like that, I would say right wing, whatever you want to call eco-fascism, whatever, that subsect, I don't see how they can sort of like the right wing romanticism involved in like right environmentalism embodied in people like Ted Kay and Linkola. I don't see how that can graft on to the, I would say, predominantly left-wing individualist anarchist version of primitivist thinking that people like Hakeem Bey and, and John Zerzan or more associate, or rather not even like them, because I wouldn't say that Zerzan or Bey, that they're like, you know, antinatalists. I mean, I don't know, maybe I could be wrong about that, but like, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like there are some things that cross over but then there are subsections of it that don't. Like, I don't particularly see Adam Lanza being into like, you know, um, Linkola and Fashwave and, you know, being an epic step warrior. I don't, I don't, I just don't see it maybe. I could, I could see maybe the evolution, but like at the point of, of his life where we meet him, I, I agree with you. Um, but I mean, I think the thing is, you know, at just like- At the Ted point Ken, where we meet him in his life, the, oh God. Uh, I say as though this is a fictional event, which it is not. <laughs> this is not a movie. This is a real life tragedy. Um, I mean, look, just like Ted K cherry picked a lull. I mean, Lanza and, 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 and you know, the, all, and all of these shooters who have this sort of like anti-tech fervor, they, they cherry, they, they themselves are cherry picking Ted K. I mean, that's it. I don't, I don't know. Um, and I'm not saying this isn't true, but I I haven't seen anyone uh, ref reference Linkola, but like, um, you know, if if they are, they're 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 clearly taking they're they're taking what they need and discarding the rest, and that's I mean that's really that's that's common that happens you know even yeah. in situations less extreme than this. I think that Bravik you can make more of a case because Bravik actually is like a right wing shooter, like you know, like like he actually did read. I think he actually did read Linkola. He read like Julius Evola. He read, but it's funny, like he reads Julius Evola and he reads what you would consider quote unquote anti-Semite um, sources. But yet he also reads like Normicons that were pretty popular at the time. Not Normicons, but like weirdo, like Christo Zionist, like um, Mark Stein. He like was a huge fan of Mark Stein. And Mark Stein actually got into heat a little bit because 
Bravik like referenced him so much in his manifesto. He read like uh, Thomas Sewell and uh, he was like pretended to be a Mason. And he was like, I was part of 33 degree, blah, blah, blah. And so he's like, he's still a bundle of contradictions, but I think like nobody really talks about Bravik apart from like, you know, bread tubers doing video essays, because I think like he fits the template of like the right wing spree shooter more than anyone else. Certainly more than even like, even like um, Columbine or uh, well, Elliot Roger, like Elliot Roger is like interesting because uh, he doesn't like, quote unquote, read the right wing literature. Like he reads Pua forums and like, he may have like knew about back when like Roosh was like a pickup artist. Like he, you know, I think he read like books like Bang, uh, you know, like, but yeah, but Breivik is definitely like, we could even do a whole episode on Breivik. That would be interesting. But, you know, he's definitely not in the same, like, category as Adam Lanza in terms of motivation. Breivik is very much, like, explicitly, I am defending Western civilization from the people who will grow up to subvert Scandinavian society and let in, like, the Muslim, you know, Islamic hordes, the Sarsians. You know, I'm kind of like Charles Martel. But, of course, you know, what he did was, like, he uh, murdered a youth group on an island of, like, you know, Lib Dem kids, like, whatever, you know. Like that's, which is kind of like, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the only thing I was trying to say is I, there's definitely like cherry picking and oh, yeah, things, yeah. And like, uh, like molding things to fit the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're literally trying to rationalize people that it's like, like, you know, school shooters, like, what are we doing? Oh, I mean, God. they it could be like rational, but it's, you know, not it. You know, it's, we don't have to agree with where that, I don't know if rational is the right word, but there could be a logic to what they do, I think. There was a logic to what Adam did, I think. Like, there was, I shouldn't say, like, I think, like, before we were, like, talking about doing this episode, we were going over it, and I said something, I said that, um, you asked me what his motivation is, and I said that, to me, it's almost like there's a nihilative nothing behind there. Like, what he's rebelling against in terms of culture and civilization, like, what is there behind it, behind, like, is there like even a Zerzan noble savage ideal. No, like there's just like unbounded, unlimited quote unquote freedom of the self that that these new atheists talk about. Like I'm free to think, I'm lightened by my own intelligence. But behind that, is there really a self to contemplate if you didn't have those various- Right, exactly. And he- he He says that him, he says that himself. Like his crusade is against sentience, and um, there. I mean, in some sense, he, he he's even like anti-nature, and ephilists are. They think that the yeah. the, the you know the enemy is nature. And nature is the biggest oppressor, and sentience is 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 you know, the oppressor. You know what's funny though is that there is a very ancient strain within the certain like mystery school orientated versions of Gnosticism that is tied together with antinatalism and with this like perverse anti-life ideology. And it's almost as if there's like some weird like Gnostic thinking going on there where it's like the absolute purity of being, but being is non-being. Instead of becoming Buddhists or whatever, they go like this Westernoid, like, you know, almost Gnostic thinking brain where they're like, while everything is like, you have to just annihilate all pretense of being 
sentient and nature having any meaning. Nature is almost poison because nature is that which gives rise to the awareness of culture and the construction of like these quote unquote artificial constructs. But how can you even define artificial constructs when you don't have a sort of root essentialism at its core? That's why I think it's Gnostic thinking through and through. Like there's even quotes from the Pisces Sophia about like, no child shall be brought in the world by woman because you know, blah, blah, blah. Like there's like very like weirdo, like if you see like nowadays, especially um, <laughs> with what's going on in the States currently, uh, you know, pretty based things going on with the Supreme Court. Um, you see like a lot of this normalization of antinatalist thinking going on with Zoomers in particular. Like there's that one tweet that blew up recently and you see this with like, you know, protest signs with the, uh, the Gilead uniform, you know, the Margaret Atwood, uh, what's it called? Handmaid's Tale. You see like the one tweet that blew up was like, um, what if you were, what if your mother aborted you? It's like, yo, bro, do you, you think I want to be here right now? And it's like this sort of cavalier sense of antinatalism where it's like, yeah, we, we, we didn't choose to be born and this world sucks, you know, because I, I'm not allowed to kill my children anymore. Like it's, you know, it's like this weird sort of worship of death because death is a cessation. Of, of being, but being itself is something that is corrupted. And I'm seeing this like alarming trend being normalized now. And so in a way, uh, and I think this all comes out with Adam Lanza's like extreme, almost like ANCAP libertarianism, because it's like this sense of like, I need to be unbounded by everything. But what is that that is being unbounded by culture and by nature? Is there an essential self? to Adam Lanza's thinking, to any antinatalist thinking, they would say no. So it's like, what are you being unbounded by? What would you go to the route that someone like, you know, Leotard or Derrida would say like, well, yeah, you just have to embrace the illusions after a while. Because if, if everything is, if, if being itself is intertextual and constructed, that's not to say that those things aren't quote unquote real, because then you just become like, you know, edgy and adolescent and, and angsty and, and like, you know, 15 year old reading the God delusion, like, oh, there's nothing is real, man. Like <laughs> you're going to be like an adolescence forever. You know, and a lot of these antinatalists in my mind, they're like, you know, they're man children. They're like, you know, oh, nothing is real. Every life sucks. You know, how dare you bring a child in this world? Cause that child could suffer. Like it's, it's like I mean, very much like get shoved in a locker nerd. Like, <laughs> and the irony is that, you know, Maybe if Lanza had gone the other way and searched for more structure as opposed to more freedom, yeah, he he would have yeah. that would have been the liberation he was looking for. And I mean, you know, that's I mean, when you put it that way, this is like, and this might be a good place to end it. Uh, that's truly like, and it's a it's it's a crime to, that's illustrative of our our present moment, and it's. It, you know, everyone thinks about it through, I think like a handful of different lenses, mental health, gun rights, uh, you know, just yeah. that object tragedy, but there's also this, this other way to look at it um, that may, you know, this is the, the darkest conclusion of a way of thinking that's normalized and generally considered not very harmful. Like most people know about antinatalism, um, yeah. but they don't know about ephilism. And this is, you know, this is the, the event that says, you know, this is this is the conclusion of a lot of things that we're pro we're promoting. It, I mean, not no, but not it's everywhere cases. though. 
like it's it's literally everywhere it's within italian futurism to a little bit of an extent like in terms of being anti-nature it is in cyborg feminism xenofeminism you know if nature is unjust we must change nature like it's it, the, the thinking of it this you know again i'm, I'm just like basically eric Vogelin posting saying that everything is like you know secular appropriations of gnosticism but this literally is kind of like gnostic thinking where if nature is unjust you must change nature it's like that is the ultimate expression of it and it's both in the left and i would even say the political right to a certain extent in terms of like millenarian thinking around the obliteration of nature and the self but not in this like hippy dippy like appropriation of buddhism like terence mckenna saying that you know culture is not your friend like this is like more of the like adolescent nihilistic antinatalist type and then of course you know fem cells they have their own version which again is like well no actually i shouldn't say that because like a lot of like cyborg feminist ideals are embraced by that other certain gnostic cult that is mostly made up of uh you know men with certain fetishes but <laughs> you know um but you I mean, know what i mean like yeah, yeah i yeah. mean i will say i don't think uh femme seldom is gnostic at all but that's no. i mean i think i think there is an episode to be done on femme cells and uh oh, self yes. if <laughs> oh yes we will do that yes. yeah um but i think maybe this is I think we should, I think we should call it. This is- What a wild ride, what a wild trip it's been. <laughs> this, yeah, this has been a I hadn't cared enough about life to pursue anything, but I hadn't cared enough about death to kill myself. So I had just been spending a lot of time moping. And I thought, why not participate on YouTube? That way I can fulfill my desire to express my hatred for culture and what it's done to me. And as I said in my video about from about a week ago, there isn't really anything left for me to say regarding what culture is, because it is such a simple concept. And when I'm talking about culture, I'm really talking about life, so I don't really have to expand on that. And now that I've fulfilled that desire, all that's left to do here is to listen to videos. And it's been kind of amusing listening to the anti-left France of other people. But I've never really enjoyed them that much, and I just continued to listen to them as an alternative to moping on the floor. Um, but I, I, have, uh, I never really got anything out of them, and now all of this has just gotten boring. This might seem like an opportune timing because Heron Church just had his big deconversion. So it might seem as if the same thing has happened to me, but that's not the case at all.